Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. latest of our series analysing the great drivers in motorsport, we're today going to talk about Jack Brabham, a three times world champion, a legendary figure, of course he passed away in, in 2014, but a, a great driver whose name is still venerated to this day and quite quite rightly so. I'm your host Ed Straw and joining me to look back at Jack Brabham, first we have Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. Wait, wait, are you a big Brabham fan? Uh, I wouldn't say a, a big fan, but I certainly, you, know, you can't help but admire his yeah, his achievements as a as a driver constructor. Um, you know, a lot of people, if you said Brabham, would probably think of you know Formula One cars that came after he retired. So yeah, big legacy in the sport. No, very very much so. And my other guest is a man who did see Jack Brabham race in his uh, in his pomp in Titchmarsh. Well, yes, I saw Jack from the time he arrived at Aintree for the Aintree two hundred in nineteen fifty six with a two fifty F Maserati, uh, and. He didn't have much success with that, but he did, of course, had already by then, indeed, uh, had the Cooper Bristol that he'd built. Uh, and that led on from one thing to another to Coopers that won the World Championship for him in 1959 and 1960. And then the great day when he won the World Championship with the Brabham car. No, very much so. I guess when we get into Brabham, we have to go straight to that thing as this uh, the sort of driver engineer. He was a successful constructor with his own Brabham, seeing the first man to, well, the only man to win a, a world championship in a car carrying his own carrying his own name. And even before that, with Cooper, he was obviously an integral part of, of that team where he won two world championships. And going right back to when he was starting off, his famous Red X special car in, the, in Australia that he was very successful in. So it, this is what Brabham is, isn't it? He's not necessarily a driver you instantly go to as sort of one of the few greats, but he's got this fantastic, very different story that he did. He contributed to his own success 
off track with what he did engineering wise and then contributes to his engineering success with what he did with it on track uh, we'll come to it in due course, but I think what is overlooked, as also was the case, I think, with Graham Hill, uh, is just how good as drivers they were. Uh, although in Jack's case, different case uh, considerations apply to Graham, but in Jack's case, um, he had this, uh, as you say, engineering aspect to his um, preparation, race cars and so on, uh, that others didn't bring. Uh, and so that was what contributed. But we'll come to some of the races he drove where in equal machinery, he was still the quickest. I mean, form, we'll come to the Formula 2 races, but in, in those, he, he was able to beat Jim Clark in straight fight in one-litre Formula 2 cars. may sound a bit Mickey Mouse, but they were serious races, those. No, very much so. And that's, uh, it's not to belittle his, uh, his driving no, because You don't have the success he had without being a, a, a spectacular driver. Well, let, let's go into what, what he was like as a driver. You had the chance to see him see him race. Um, in terms of the style he took, the approach he took to, to driving, what, what was he like to, to watch from trackside? Well, I found an old quote uh to, to to lob this in he began racing on um oval tracks in australia uh and uh when he came over to uh, he, then he had the, the the cooper pistol red x special as you say um he then came over to race in europe in 1955 for the first time uh, and a comment that was made about him quite early on was you take the boy out of the speedway but you can't take the speedway out of the boy and so an aspect of his driving was this kind of speedway star, which was untidy, let's put it that way. Um, opposite Locke was certainly, he was a spectacular looking driver in a way that others of the era, Sterling Moss, an obvious example, uh, yeah, Sterling could drive a car sideways, but he knew it wasn't the quickest way around the corner. Uh, Jack tended to sort things out in the middle of the corner and there was opposite Locke then coming out of the corner, had a wheel over the curb and bricks were flying, you know, from the rather unfinished edges of the circuit that existed in those days. Um, occasionally they hit his opponents on the head and, and, and things like that. We'll come to that as well, probably. Um, so he wasn't a stylist, let's put it that way, but he was very quick. In many ways, that style of driving actually is is quite hard to, to master because it does put a lot of focus on your ability to correct and feel and and react to the car i guess a modern exponent of that to an extent let slightly narrow window is someone like fernando alonso again who again you would say he's not he's not actually a stylist behind the wheels people have complained when i've said that in the past but he's he's not he's a guy who grabs a car by the scruff, the scruff of the neck isn't afraid to have it moving around feels the car reacts and that's why you can that's why you can drive anything yeah, and you have to say that that Jack had you know, adaptability, and he was you know, look at the cars that he was racing at the start of his career. He mentioned the the 250F that he had early on, <laughs> and compare that to the BT33 when he started his last, you know, Slicks and Wings Grand Prix car in 1970. So, although he had this, that he did have a style, it wasn't that he couldn't apply that to to different sorts of cars. And I think the the short track experience that Ian mentioned is really important because. It's very easy to, you know, if you're looking at it from a sort of European or UK-centric perspective, like, where's this guy come from? He hasn't got any experience. Well, actually, he's honed his uh, basic car control, if you like, in that in that environment, which is is kind of rough and ready, but very competitive, and you have to battle, and it, I think it, it, it put him in good stead for when he first came over. So even though he was perhaps a bit wild, he was immediate, pretty immediately quick, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Ian? Yes. Is Australian racing had very little coverage in the UK and in Europe, I think it's right to say. So that when he arrived in 1955, um, he didn't bring the... I think it, I'm right in saying he sold the Cooper Bristol, the Red X Special, in Australia, left it behind. And in hindsight, he thinks perhaps that wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, he should have brought the car over with him because Cooper Bristols were still relatively competitive in non-championship Formula 1 races, even though they were only two-litre cars in 55. Um, and so he built his own Formula 1 car, uh, which was a, a Manx-tailed Cooper sports car, um, with a two-litre 
Cooper pistol, uh, two liter pistol engine put in the back of it. And the first race he did in that, after struggling with this Cooper Alta, uh, which was a, a dreadful thing, and he was hoodwinked into buying that. He was somebody said to him, "Oh, that's what we want to get," and he bought this car from Peter Whitehead, uh, and it was just dreadful. Um, and he thought, "Am I cut out for this? I mean, am I really going to make a name for myself or progress in racing?" But he got this this um, Cooper Bristol, uh, which he built himself. I mean, John Cooper allowed him to to construct it um, uh, in the Cooper workshops. And whilst it would be wrong to say it worked straight away because his first race was the 1955 British Grand Prix um, and he was way behind and the car just wasn't on the pace. He entered it in quite a few non-championship Formula One races for the rest of the year uh, and he began to make quite an impression and people began to take notice of this guy. Uh, and what the, the race that really mattered to him in that first year in Europe was was the, the Red X Trophy, which is a non-championship Formula One race at Snetterton. Uh, and he had a great battle all the way through with Sterling Moss's 250F Maserati. Now, this is 55, so it's only a year after that Maserati was built. Uh, so it wasn't exactly an obsolete car then. Uh, and he was uh, actually um, getting the better of Sterling. Uh, the two van walls, Harry Shell and Ken Wharton, were way out in front. But this is this battle for third place. Um, and, and Jack was ahead of it. And this is this raw Australian uh, in a car that he built up himself, basically, um, seeing off Sterling Moss in a a one-year-old 250F Maserati state-of-the-art uh, Grand Prix car. Uh, uh, he spun four laps from the end, so he didn't end up finishing in, in third place, but he, he finished in fourth. But that was the race that he always subsequently said was the one that convinced him he had a hope of uh, progressing his career in Europe. So although he went back to Australia at the end of the year, uh, taking the Cooper with him, um, when he came back, um, yes, he got the Maserati. Well, it was the Cooper that got him back effectively, wasn't it? Because yes. he, he won the Australian Grand Prix at That's Wakefield, right. sold it, and that came yes. back to Europe. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Ed. Yes. Um, but that 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 was both Jack, the racing driver, and and Jack, the the car constructor. Even though in those days it was a Cooper, not a Brabham, that was to come sometime later. I guess falling in with uh, with uh, the Coopers, uh, Charles Cooper and John Cooper was critical, wasn't it? Because actually, it's not too far from where we are now. We're in our headquarters in Richmond, and just down the road in Surbiton, that's where uh, where Cooper was, and obviously. Do you go and pay homage there from time to time? I'm not sure about pay homage, but it's one of those ones where every time you go past past it, because it's very you can see, you can see clearly where it is, where it where very it important part of British motor very, very, very much so. motor racing that that place. Yeah, yeah no, very, very very much so. And uh, yeah, it's it's a nice. Uh, I used to drive past it all the time when we used to be based in Teddington, but uh, when we moved, it's uh, so. But it's yeah. Uh, a, a nice uh, a nice reminder of the past but obviously he worked for them he was given a little bit of workshop space that he could work on the, on, on his car and then eventually that led him to being a, a proper Cooper Works driver that's right I mean he and Roy Salvadori became the, 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 the Cooper uh, Works drivers in sports cars and then Formula 2 came on the scene in 957 um so his performances with the Maserati weren't that outstanding. He got third place in the HE200 but that was about the best um result he achieved with that car. And then he became, he'd already be a sports car driver for Coopers in 56. And, and uh, then Formula 2 came on the scene in 57. And he and Roy Salvadori were, and, and Roy was the, an established front runner and a very, very good driver um, in Formula 1 and Formula 2. And it was Roy who came up with the idea of putting a two-litre engine um, in the back of a Formula 2 car um, for to go Grand Prix racing with. Were people getting excited about Brabham at this stage? Thinking about those days, obviously that's before he he kind of really broken through, but he was still clearly performing at, at a decent level. Was he getting noticed? He was noticed because he was pretty quick, um, and he was written about and talked about, but not. I mean, he, he was 
in terms of British races, because obviously we didn't see Fangio racing in the UK that often, um, there was Sterling Moss. And so anybody was going to be overshadowed by Sterling's reputation and, and achievements. Um, but he, he was regarded as uh, a, a talent worth keeping an eye on. Uh, and it was a gradual process, really. He didn't sort of suddenly hit the headlines. He, he was somebody who, by building on the success he was achieving, um, he came, I mean, in 57, I think it's probably fair to say, and probably in the sports cars in 56 as well, he was, he and, Jack, and Roy Salvadori were very evenly matched. I mean, and, and Roy Salvadori, I don't think would ever claim to be a future world champion. Roy Salvadori was a very good driver. Um, that Jack was better than that didn't really become clear until, I suppose, 59. Well, 59, obviously the success of the T51, the first world championship winning car with a uh, engine behind the, the driver, although there had been successful Grand Prix cars with, uh, with, with the engine not at the front. Uh, pre-war, but Kev, this this is the point where kind of Brabham's influence is important because he did he did modify the gearbox cases, didn't he? He was strengthening ribs in them that because they didn't have a strong enough gearbox to uh, to, to do that. Which I think they're Citroen casings, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, so he he knew a little bit about metallurgy and was able to <laughs> go to a foundry and do it and do it himself. Yeah, and I think that's a theme that sort of comes up in his career quite regularly, isn't it? That he's very good at he was very good at finding a sort of pragmatic way of solving a problem and actually the, the Repco engine later was Repco probably the most 66, titanic yeah, example n- yeah, not necessarily the big numbers but getting the solutions that got the job done and I think that he's, he probably doesn't get the credit for the role that he played at Cooper with that um, and actually it's the difference between ultimately it was the thing that meant he won the world championship and Sterling Moss didn't because in, the, in those you know Moss was in the Rob Walker uh, T51 and Moss was normally quicker but his car broke more often and it was normally the Colossal gearbox that, that went and Jack's car didn't and, and you have to give him some credit for for that. If we could just look at the... We've talked about the Red X Trophy in 55 and how important that was in his decision to persevere with a career in Europe. But but the next significant race in my mind was the 57 Monaco Grand Prix, uh, which the story is that he, he, uh, he was driving a car which was largely financed by Rob Walker uh, it was running as a, a works car um, and he crashed in qualifying or practice as it was called they're not qualifying um, at Massonet and tried to get into the casino by the back door um, and he tells how the the um, one of the poles that uses barriers in those days landed on just behind his head on the engine cover so he just missed being crushed literally it was that close um, anyway oh, ironically he was potentially saved by a telegraph pole later in his career but that's indeed an, he was that's yeah. another story um so he, uh, so they had two Coopers there. One was a Formula Two, one and a half liter engine car, which Les Leston was set to drive, but that um, had a, a, the engine broke on that. So what they decided to do was put the engine out of um, Jack's crash car into the Formula Two car and drive that in the Grand Prix. Now, first of all, we had to qualify for the Grand Prix, but re- as I did before we had this session, read Dennis Jenkinson's report of that race. And all the way through, as Jack worked his way up into third place, he was running in third place shortly before the end. Jenks is saying just how well he was going. I mean, it, it really wasn't just a case of letting the people in front fall out. Yes, Sterling Moss had his accident at the chicane with Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins taken out in it as well. And Fangio was winning the race and Tony Brooks was second. But Jack Brown was third in this two-litre Cooper, Formula 2 Cooper with a two-litre engine in it uh, until just before the end um, when... Uh, problems with the fuel pump bracket meant that he just ran out of petrol and he coasted 
to the um, Casino Square and then coasted down from Casino Square all the way through um, the Station Hairpin, as it was called then, uh, along the seafront uh, and eventually ground to a halt just to back, which in those days was an upgradient. And then you turned left and the finish line was just before um, the Gasworks Hairpin. And he pushed the car. And he pushed the car across the line in sixth place. Now, in those days, you didn't get a point for finishing sixth, uh, uh, only for finishing the first five. And that wasn't the first time. Oh, sorry, it was the first time, but it wasn't the last time that he ended up pushing a car uh, across the finishing line. But that drive just showed, all oh, right, it was a circuit that kind of suited the Cooper, the little Cooper. But nonetheless, uh, I mean, Dennis Jenkinson was really, and, and Jenks was the, the kind of arbiter of what was good driving and what was outstanding driving. And he really was enthusiastic about the way Jack had driven in that race. And I think that's one, for me, may not be everybody agree with that, but for me, that's one of his one of his great races, the 57 Monaco Grand Prix. Well, we'll get to his great races later on, the Kevin Turner patented list. You look like someone who hasn't put that race in, but it's... Uh... I haven't, no. Oh, that's well, that's good. That means, we can ha- that means we can. That means we've, you know, we have a bit of have, bit of debate. A, have a heated debate. Um, why does it always have to be heated with you? Why can't it just be a debate? Pe- people like <laughs> strong opinions and heated debates. Fair enough. As long as they're justified, we don't want to manufacture them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but but this, um, I mean, it was fifty nine. That was the year that everything really came together, and he had the car, won the world championship for Cooper, first a back to back world championships in the Cooper T fifty one, and now the low line the, the the next year. But he, you know that that was. That was kind of the point where he went up to that next level, didn't it? Because he worked. Because in fact, I think the '59 Monaco win was probably his first first Formula first, World first, Championship win. First, yeah. well, first big yes. big race win. You yeah, probably argue as well. And that goes back to my point about it, he he gradually made a bigger and bigger impression. Uh, I mean, 1958 again. He and Roy Salvadori were the works Cooper drivers, um, and Roy finished, I think, fourth in the World Championship. I mean, he he had a better season that, that, than Jack had uh, in 1958, uh, and then Roy made the big mistake of going to drive Formula One cars for Aston Martin. And that was kind of the end of his, he didn't, he carried on until 61 in Formula One, but uh, 62 in Formula One, but um, Jack stayed behind and Roy went off to drive for uh, Aston Martin and produced the T51, uh, which was the car that he won at Monaco with. But yeah, just to back up that point about the the gradual burn, he, in his um, uh, autobiography, um, when the fag drops, he actually says, it wasn't until he won the British Grand Prix later in the year that he actually really believed that maybe the World Championship was was on. Now he'd say he'd won Monaco, um, but he uh, he always had mixed feelings about that because he allowed Moss to get too far ahead, and so he he you know, he actually his pace at the end of the race was incredible um, when he needed to turn it on. But had Moss still been in the race, it would have been too late, um, and he sort of used to you know he criticised himself for that. Um, so I think he was probably a, he, in his own mind was gradually emerging as a as a championship threat and it wasn't until after Aintree in 59 that he sort of really thought well this might be on well of course 59 was the first year of the two and a half litre Comte Climax engine um, before that in, in um, 58 there hadn't been there'd been two litre engines um, so 59 was when he, he had he couldn't be completely sure that it was going to work but he had this two and a half litre engine in the back of the Cooper uh, Grand Prix were then shorter had become shorter from 58 onwards uh, and he found himself in this um, very strong position without really necessarily being convinced it was going to be like that. And then, as you say, after Aintree, he then realised, the, the British Grand Prix, he then realised that he had a real chance of winning the World Championship. Um, and he duly did. 
Yeah, and it was uh, of course a, a strong. It wasn't that year he had the uh, the crash at Monsanto Park, which I briefly alluded to when he was yes. uh, ended up airborne, bounced off a telegraph pole, and then uh, he said he had two bits of luck. One was hitting a telegraph pole, which stopped the car falling down a drop, and the other one was that he didn't have a seatbelt, so he's thrown from the car, which landed upside down. Well, so. yeah, and he was nearly run over by his teammate. Yes, yeah, yeah. Aston Gregory, Aston yeah. Gregory, yeah. yeah. Um, I thought one of those jobs. Good driver, Maston Gregory. Actually, he's not talked oh, about. Get me going well. on him. A wonderful. Uh, uh, two books I can recommend to you about Maston Gregory. It's worth getting. I'll, I'll add them to the list. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a growing. The the the, the Ian Titchmarsh recommended books reading list is uh, is growing, but very very valuable. Uh, we should say in fifty nine a bit of myth busting. I like to uh, I like to put. In, although Jack Brabham did win the championship as he pushed his car over the line at Sebring after it ran out of fuel in a race that Bruce McLaren won. It didn't actually win in the World Championship because it was drop points, wasn't it? So that, that result didn't count. He didn't know it at the time, so he was... The, the, Trying to get the best result he could. Yeah, so yes. it, it, it tells you something about him, but that the, the 59 Sebring pushing over the line didn't technically win in the World Championship. Well, that, well about that race, of course, he, he, he was leading Bruce McLaren, his teammate. Maston Gregory had had his accident in the Tourist Trophy at Goodwood, therefore he wasn't able to drive in the race. So they just had the two Works Coopers. Um, and... Uh, Bruce was just following him round, uh, and uh, then Jack ran out of petrol. Um, so here we go again, pushing a car to the finish. Uh, and Maurice Trantignol in the Rob, second Rob Walker car, Sterling Moss had retired very early on, um, but Maurice Trantignol was reeling in Bruce McLaren, who'd slowed down sort of on an after you Claude basis to see whether he was allowed to overtake Jack, and Jack waved him through. So Bruce just got across the line as Maurice Trantignol was coming right up behind. If Trantignol got ahead, it wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome of the World Championship. Jack would still have won it, but it would have affected the points situation. Mm. No, very much so. And it's a, it is an iconic image, though, isn't it? They, they recreate, recreate it with David Brabham. Oh, well, that rings a bell. I'm sure they, they did something done. like that. So mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a great image, that. And uh, I guess, yeah, it tells you something about him. But I guess 60 was the, the kind of crushing championship win, wasn't it? That Where they just they won the, the majority of World Championship races uh, that Well, year. he won five in a row. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think a lot of the credit for the T53, the, the, the low-line so-called Cooper, was down to Jack. I mean, yes, Cooper did have a designer, but but Jack was coming up with ideas all the time about how to make this T51 into a, a more competitive car, given that Lotus were coming out. In fact, isn't the story that uh, he and John Cooper sat next to each other on the plane back from Argentina, having seen how well Innes Island had gone in the, in the first rear-engine Lotus, the Lotus 18, and realised they had to do something? Um, because Bruce McLaren had won in the T51 in Argentina, uh, and they hadn't actually um, got round to finalising the, 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 the car for, for, um, for, for 1960. And so on the way back, they kind of drew what they needed. The low-line car emerged, and, and it just carried all before it, really. Yeah, it was definitely sparked by the performance, because the Lotus yeah. 18 had outpaced the Cooper, in, although it didn't survive. Uh, That's right in, yeah. in 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 Argentina, yeah, and I think that Brabham also described that as the first sort of proper Grand Prix Cooper. He felt that that was ironing out some of the slightly odd, because even if you look at the T fifty one, it's got a very clear lineage back through the F two cars, leaf and, springs and, and things. Yes, yes. and uh, but the the, the C fifty three was what he considered to be a proper Grand Prix car, and of course Ferrari was still with still had the front engine car, which was less and less competitive really, um, and. The Lotus 18 was probably a bit, still a bit unreliable, but Colin Chapman hadn't quite got cars to the end often enough. And of course, his main rival that year would have been Sterling Moss in a Lotus, but he had the the wheel fall off at Spa and had an enormous accident and missed some rounds. And that really left Brabham clear to, to just get win after win after win. But he had to work for them. I mean, he, he, he um, one of his 
best races of that year um, was the French Grand Prix, uh, where he had a great battle. I mean, the Ferraris were still quick on circuits with long straights, and the the, the Rance Road Circuit was really a triangle. Uh, there were a couple of corners that required a bit of skill, um, but otherwise it was two sharp right-handers. And his battle with Phil Hill in that race is something I think Kevin he, he remembers well. Yeah, well, I think Ed, you actually did the interview with him, didn't you? And yeah. he picked that as his race of my race. Yeah, and I visited him out at the Gold Coast at his home in uh, 2009. I think it was the, the I think it was between the, the uh, Clipsal 500 Australian Supercars round I went to in the Australian Grand Prix. So that was a <laughs> that was a, 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 a good memory. But uh, yeah, yeah, he he picked that race and. It's interesting the the kind of Cooper period. Although he won two world championships and won many races, that's almost a preface to what really defines Brabham's career in a in a way, isn't it? Because we remember him as the as the constructor owner, although he was well, contributing well, at Cooper. Yeah, but as as somebody who was alive at the time watching the races, I, I don't quite agree with that. Um, at the time, his achievements in winning the world championship twice. Were regarded as as, as significant and well, great course, achievements. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you um, wouldn't have known what was to come uh, at that stage. Precisely that. So, I, I don't think him becoming a constructor um, was. Yeah, it was a significant event in the, in the Jack Brabham's career. But what he achieved with Coopers, whether it was the original Cooper uh, Max Tail Cooper, the Cooper Pistol, or whether it was the Cooper Climaxes in fifty nine and sixty, all those were considerable achievements and were seen as that at the time. No, I certainly very much, uh, very much agree with that. Although he was, he was feeling that there was a bit of friction with uh, Charles Cooper, wasn't there, about spending an investment and that kind of thing. I think I Charles think... Cooper generated friction with all his drivers. Yes, that, that's that's very very true. Well, isn't he alleged to have said, "Why well, change anything when we're winning?" Yeah, to exactly. which, at which point, Jack thought maybe now is the time yeah. we need to be uh, moving on and doing something else. Well, of course, the one thing that did change that went against them that ended this run of success was the rule change for for sixty one, which uh, meant which made Cooper sort of they, they were no longer able to, to win well I'd argue that, that the um, it wasn't the rule rule changes fault it was the British team's fault for thinking they could live with the Intercontinental Series uh, you didn't need to move to one and a half litre cars uh, whereas Ferrari realised that that was the way the world was going and so they got cars that were ready uh, and two thirds of the way through the year the V8 Coventry Climax engine appeared and Jack drove it at um, the German Grand Prix and for the rest of the season um, but it was not fully developed and not reliable though jack did spin off at the german grand prix i think um but it, that that i don't think you can blame um the regulations for that change what you can blame is is the the, the british team not being ready for it well i guess yeah the the, the regulations created the conditions and the british yeah. team's short-sightedness perhaps uh, uh that, that led to it um but that did i guess kind of make sure that that jack went on to create Brabham because he was running obviously Brabham in '62 at sort of level started off with the Lotus and then once his own. Yeah, I mean whether you read a, whether you, whether it's what Jack thought about Cooper or, or Bruce McLaren who, who was still there uh, thought about Cooper, um, they were their own worst enemy. They'd had this great success winning the World Championship twice with Jack Brabham, but they weren't Charles Cooper in particular. wasn't prepared to move with the times, and 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 so Cooper gradually um, fell by the, fell back fell by the wayside almost. Yeah, and it wasn't so long before Cooper was no longer operating. So, uh, yeah, so it says a uh, says a lot there. But this, um, I mean, this this 
period of building up Brabham, which became very quite quickly a successful constructor. It was selling a lot of cars, F2 machinery in particular. So this was a big old operation. Jack Brabham brought over Ron Toronac from uh, Australia, who he'd known over there. So that it's almost this is the point where the driving side almost becomes secondary to him, doesn't it? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, Ron Toronac, you've mentioned, uh, was, was a factor before he came over to Europe. Uh, and the story goes that, that Jack was regularly in touch with him uh, about the Coop, in his Cooper days. Uh, with Ron's input, and eventually, I think he realised what we talked about about Coopers weren't going anywhere, so he had to break out on his own. And the first um, cars that he constructed under Ron Toronac um, were the MRDs of 1961, the Formula Junior cars. Um, and then you know the story about why the MRD they were called MRDs because the motor racing developments. Um, but uh, it was pointed out to him uh, that if you say MRD in the French way. <laughs> It's a rude word, so he thought of had to think of something else. Um, and well, why not Brabham? So mm. that's how Brabham and all the car, Brabham's, of course, were BT type numbers. The T for Toronac. and that MRD company actually name did still exist. Yes, all the way right. through to uh, that's right. the, the Brabham Marks final days, long after uh, Jack had ceased to, to own them. No, I was just going to add to the point about the the driver engineer thing. <clears throat> I think. Because Brabham actually, the, the cars get competitive very quickly, I think, and certainly in modern context. They, it doesn't take them long to be competitive propositions in the various categories that they built cars for. And the 1964 car, um, 64 is an incredible season, actually, because Lotus, Brabham, Ferrari and BRM all had cars that were very close um, on pace and it waxed and waned during the course of the year. And by then, Brabham had Dan Gurney as his teammate, and um, if you read his autobiography, he realises that running the company or uh, and getting the car sorted and being the lead driver was maybe a bit much. And he could see in Gurney a driver that could lead the way. Gurney, with a bit more luck, would have been in the championship fight at the end of 64. They had a little bit too much unreliability. And during 65, Brabham didn't do all the races. Um, he did some of the Formula 1 races, but he was very much thinking that Gurney was going to lead the team and maybe he that, he says that that's the first time he thought about retirement uh, and at just that moment Gurney decided to go off and do his own thing with Eagle and uh, and leave so Brabham's first attempt at retirement didn't happen um, uh, so yeah I think that's an example of where he, he again it's a bit pragmatic I've got my lead driver now I'm going to work on making sure the car's a bit more reliable yeah I mean the business of built I mean there were the MRDs in 1961 and then in 62 the first Formula One car appeared. Um, he, le- he left um, Cooper at the end of 61, um, having already been instrumental in the MRDs being made. Um, and then in 62, uh, the Brabham, they, they were called Brabham's the Formula Junior cars, uh, and I think they made about 12 that year. Um, and the Formula One car, the, um, the BT3, first appeared that year. And I think his best, well, he certainly saw him finish, I think, third in the, Ultra Park Gold Cup with it. He didn't actually win with it until the following year in 1963. Um, but in 62, it began, as I think you intimated, it began to achieve decent results almost straight away. It was solitude, wasn't it? I think because he was winning in 63, but in non championship. Yeah, the solitude yeah, that's right. Non championship, which is a wonderful road course uh, near Stuttgart, isn't it? Uh, have uh, you driven around it? I've not, but I. I, I do it's very much aspire to. I'd love yeah. to to, yeah. to go there. And then, it, then having having I'm going. This is I'm going off a tangent. 
then back to Dennis Jenkinson, you want to read his report of the 61 Solitude Grand Prix, which Innes Ireland won. Okay, no, I've not And that. He, he won by uh, the most amazing last lap when he sorted out the Porsches. And obviously the Lotus 21 wasn't a match with a, a good Porsche driven by the likes of Bonnier and Gurney. Um, and Innes won the race. Um, then let his hair down at the party afterwards. So that, uh, <laughs> um, but but that that is, a, is, as you say, a great road circuit, really great road circuit. Yeah, often, uh, often for, forgotten. Um, but you talk about, Kev, about, that as time went on, Brabham was kind of looking at whether he should focus on off track. But as you said, he, he remained a formidable competitor during this during this period. He went all the way on to 1970, and he was still able to win races. What I find interesting, and uh, we'll get on to these great races late, later. But first of all, with his autobiography, he's very much more interested in the the technical, the putting the package together. And he he doesn't really talk about his great races very much, less than most drivers. So a slightly different sort of book in that respect. So I think that gives a good insight into his sort of priorities. Um, and also, I think he's a driver that uh, sort of raised his game uh, to, to when the, the kit was good. When he knew that he got everything in place, I think that's when he gave his best. Um uh, and in fact, some of the writers, other writers at the time saying, oh, you know, he's been a bit lackluster here or, or he's back on form, you know, you, in a way that you don't tend to hear people write about Jim Clark, for example. Um, and, you know, he he saw, you know, with Gurney gone, the three litre regulations were coming in. Again, most of the most of the British teams weren't ready for one reason or another for a new engine. Uh, and he just very pragmatically, you know, I think it was an Oldsmobile block, wasn't it? The Was it an Oldsmobile block yes. that Repco had? Yes. Saw the opportunity, got Rep- Repco doing it, and he said he had a good feeling for 66 because he knew that the engine would be tractable, pretty reliable, and the power outputs that people were saying three litres was going to have weren't realised until Cosworth arrived the following year with the DFV. But a lot of the engines were a bit poor, really, and he just had a, you know, he... he he got it right. The only car, really, you'd say was that should probably have beaten him to the World Championship was Ferrari. But once John Surtees left, that was a shambles. Um, or, or there wasn't a single driver to take the fight to him. And, and he just reeled off reeled off the wins and actually won the championship quite comfortably in the end, really, in 66. Yeah, I mean, the opposition was the Ferraris and the, uh, were the, Ferraris and the Cooper Maseratis. Uh, and uh, Jack had put a package together, which use your word pragmatic um pragmatically um gave him what he needed john surtees was to his dying day scathing about the ferrari um everybody thought that was going to be the car to beat he was in the right place good driver in the car and so on uh and, and it was just a sports car engine as far as he was concerned there was not the power that people were talking about uh for the ferrari and so i'm not in saying that diminishing what jack achieved but simply pointing out that that the opposition sort of faded away. I mean, the Cooper Maserati was a spectacular looking car and watching people like John Surtees drive it when he moved from Ferrari um, was quite a sight to see. But it was a great big thing. Well, I think everyone else either overreached or under-delivered or both. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the H16 BRM that came along and they started this, Loton BRM started the season with two litre engines and just nobody was ready really. Um, but he was and the reason that Brabham was ready was largely because of Jack himself. So, um, yeah, one of the reasons why nobody was ready was because Coventry Climax had pulled out uh, and weren't going to do a three-litre engine. Uh, and that's why Walter Hayes then sanctioned the Cosworth DFE engine on behalf of Ford. But the um, the one two-litre engine that was available was went to Jim Clark in the Lotus. Um, but there weren't any or many worthwhile three-litre engines. That's why Cooper had to go to Maserati with their sports car engine from 1958. Or whatever, uh, it went back to... 
The fascinating thing here is that sometimes uh, Bravham's driving ability is overlooked, but he's a three times world champion. He could also have won 67. Danny Hillman's teammate did win. Yes. He could potentially, you could make an argument, he could have won 70 if things had gone a little, a little bit different. And he certainly made that argument. <laughs> so uh, you've, got, you've got this driver who you almost. His drivability sometimes gets a little bit sidelined. He could have been a five times world champion. Just um, and sixty-seven, probably his desire to to kind of push the boundaries probably undid him and allowed Holm to to pip into the title. You could argue. Uh, well, you could argue a very strong case there. And, and nineteen seventy is definitely one of those if only years because he won one race, but he should have won. Uh, at least two others. Yeah, Monaco, uh, of course, famously going off the last corner under pressure. From yeah, well, that was a driving rinse, mistake. Yeah. Uh, and then running out of fuel at Brands Hatch when he should have won the... Um, and the and 1970s really remembered for Jochen Rinn to the Lotus 72, uh, when, uh, who some would say was the greatest racing car of all time. Uh, and the um, car just ran out of fuel. Yeah, no, that, that, a bit of an error, error made there, but it's... It's amazing that in 1970, he's still able to win races at the age of 44. There have been a few attempts at retirement. There was a point where Rint was going to be... There was a point where Rint was going to come back, wasn't he? And then <clears throat> yeah, he, he wanted to Lotus. He wanted... Uh, yeah, he wanted... Well, again, 69, he was looking to... Um, I don't think he wanted to retire, but I think he was thinking maybe... Uh, was- when I when I in- interviewed him in 2009, he was still very, very irritated at being... Uh, sort of made to retire yeah. by family pressures <laughs> yes, <laughs> 71. Yes. But, but I think he was sort of prepared to and he was trying to hold on to Rinton obviously Colin Chapman you know there was a bit of you know to and fro in um, but he, again he had a good feeling about the BT33 you know it was the first monocoque Brabham because they were on the last I think they probably were the last F1 team to go for, away from the space frame um, it was the second year with the DFE engine 68 was a bit of a washout the Repco couldn't really go, couldn't match the new DFV level. So 69, he got a DFV, and the BT33 was a DFV with a, you know, monocoque with a DFV engine. And he knew that, again, he had that feeling that it was going to be competitive. And um, and, it, and it was, yeah, he won in South Africa just before his 44th birthday, which was pretty amazing. Should have won Monaco, should have won British Grand Prix. And actually, after British Grand Prix, there was a problem in the fuel system, which meant that it wasn't getting, uh, the engine wasn't performing as it should. And they didn't work that out and correct it. So perhaps the one failing in his uh, in his engineering career, um, they didn't correct it until the end of the season when he was the quickest DFV engine car apart from apart from Jackie Stewart and the new Tyrrell. So yeah, nineteen seventy is sort of the one that that got away, which is quite remarkable for someone who finished the season as a at forty four. Uh, and, and in that year, of course, he also signed to drive them for Matra in sports car racing. Yes, he did. Yeah, uh, and did a limited number of, uh, and he won Montlhery, I think I'm right in saying with Sever. That was almost his last race. Yeah, and uh, I think this this achievement of being a driver constructor winning the world championship, which is, it's, you know, it's easy to kind of underestimate because there's nobody really who comes close to that. I guess maybe Bruce McLaren, Bruce McLaren, who, but he didn't have anything like that. I mean, obviously, things were curtailed for him personally, but you know, Brabham stands head and shoulders above others in terms of what he managed to achieve in in doing this. Well, I think part part of it is because of the input he had into Cooper. For his first two world championships, yes, they were Coopers, and they came out of the Cooper factory. And but the 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 role he had there should not be overlooked, but is often overlooked. And then, of course, yes, obviously, with the third year, uh, nineteen sixty six, with the Brabham Ron Torrenac design car, um, and nearly in, as we've been saying, nearly in sixty seven as well. But I think he was very a very fair team owner in the sense that um, whether it was in sixty five when he cut down his racing to encourage Denny Hulm and give Denny Hulm the opportunity to race alongside uh, Dan Gurney 
Um, later on, Jackie X became his teammate. Um, Jochen Rint um, was his, his teammate for a time as well. I mean, he 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 offered other drivers a chance. Bruce McLaren, in his original From the Cockpit book, um, said how much he owed to Jack Brabham when he first arrived uh, in the UK. Um, obviously, he was a Kiwi and, and Jack's an Australian, but they got on very well with each other and he learned a lot from Bruce, that is, learned a lot from, from Jack. And I think um, one of the reasons that Rint was happy to go to uh, Brabham in 68, well, part of it was because he was cheesed off with Cooper and Roy Salvadori, um, but was because he'd seen how Brabham had handled the situation with Holman and he'd yeah. allowed Holman to have a run at the championship and he'd not done, I think, as you say, he played a very straight bat. Yeah. And I think Rint was, it, it's very, it's, I find it quite difficult to to know where to slot Brabham in because, as you say, it wouldn't take a huge stretch to say he's a five-time champion, but also he was, you know, he, he wasn't as quick as Dan Gurney when they were teammates. He wasn't as quick as Jochen Rint when they were teammates. He wasn't as quick as Jackie X. You know, there, were, there were quicker drivers around he was quicker than Bruce McLaren, you know, so you start to slot him in. But you have to elevate him a bit further because of he's the guy that's putting the package together. How far that elevates you probably it elevates him probably depends on your own criteria. Wait, really. wait, and when do you put Formula Two in? Because how much importance do you attach to that? Because I would contend that in Formula Two he was as quick as anybody uh, in the one litre Formula Two days. Uh, we mentioned it early on the the um, his Alton Park Gold Cup win, for example. Um, in a one-litre F2 car, he beat Jim Clark by half a length. I mean, it was a magnificent race. Yeah, I've been reading a bit on the F2 of that period, and there's some absolutely epic contests yeah. between F2 him, Hull, Clark, Rint, um, and at times Graham Hill, um, and all in slipstream battles. And yeah, I mean, I think if, if was, you look at the, look at the drivers in F2, not just the big names, yeah. but also the F2, the up and coming F2 up and coming ones, especially the ones who never quite had a big Grand Prix career. It's it's absolutely sensational. Well, I think one of his strengths was racecraft. If you look at the sixty French Grand Prix and the sixty six French Grand Prix, actually, in both cases, he knows how to use the slipstream to stay with a faster car. And really, in sixty six, he catches Ferrari out because he stays. He stays, I think it's um, Bandini, I think, is, is leading and he's in his slipstream. At Reims. At Reims, yeah, in 66. Yeah. Um, and, by, and eventually the Ferrari breaks away, but then then fails and Brabham's got the lead. And by the time Ferrari get right, try and get Mike Parks to catch up with him, it's it's too late. He's broken the toe from anyone else. And F2, a lot of those races were about slipstreaming. Yeah, they're sort of relatively underpowered. Um, well, I guess you'd almost say like a people were perhaps more familiar with Formula Fords. You've got no wings, you've got you know, pack, packs of cars, and he seemed to have a very good knack of knowing where to where to be, and, and, and you know, he always came out very well in those sorts of contests. I, I think you're right, uh, and I would say Jim Clark had it as well. They're natural-born racers, and, and, and they, they know instinctively what to do um, in a given situation of slipstreaming or whatever it might be. Uh, one thing that Jack did, we mentioned earlier on, that, that perhaps others didn't do so much, was, was hang wheels over the edge so that um, the bricks came flying back. Well, is, is this because uh, he's got a bit of a reputation for that sort of thing yes. and uh, the dark arts? Yeah, you might say is that is that overblown or is it? Was it deliberate or was it more that he it was uh, an outcome of that style that you were talk, Depends talking? Depends who you're talking about. To. You'd, have to <laughs> ask, you'd have to ask Sterling Moss. Uh, I mean, I mean it, it definitely happened. Um, oh yes, I think that's fair. Whether it was deliberate um, or just a bit of untidiness, I, I don't know. But 
I'd like to think it wasn't deliberate. It deliberate in the sense of really wanting to get something thrown back in the face of the guy behind. It doesn't fit with the rest of his approach, was it? I don't think he well, was. Sort of he was a hard racer. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a hard, hard character as well. As yeah. we, as we yeah. talked about, kind of raised on the the dirt tracks of Australia. That's, yeah, that's not a. I know we've probably got a slightly stereotype <laughs> image of what's that like, but it, rough and ready springs to mind. Hmm. But but some of his, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the the two. We'll probably come to them when we go through your top 10 uh, greatest drives. But um, when he won the 1964 Daily Express International Trophy at Silverstone, that was on the last lap at Woodcote, you know, a classic Silverstone-type finish, round the outside of Graham Hill. Um, and he won the race by sheer cussedness and determination to, to get across the line first. Uh, it was, you know, he came from quite some way back to win that race. It was a much more difficult win to achieve than a couple of years earlier when uh, Graham Hill beat Jim Clark because Jim was slowing by then unaware of, of um, the fact that he was being caught up so rapidly by, by Graham in the BRM um, that was a phenomenal um, performance to, to win that international trophy uh, and a few weeks earlier he'd won at Aintree after I mean I watched that race and it, it was just a fantastic the Aintree 200 the battle he had with Jim Clark and they were changing places and, and, and eventually uh, Jimmy tri- tripped over a back marker uh, and uh, Jack won the race, but it was. A, I mean, Jack was as good as Jim Clark that day. Well, Moss has said how he was, how Brabham was tenacious. So mm. he wasn't one of. He said some drivers, once you'd overtaken them, that was kind of you could forget about them. They were just going to, you know, psychologically broken, or you could pull away. But Brabham wasn't like that. He would sort of hang on to you and do you back, and you, yeah. you knew you were in a real scrap. So I think he was one of those that had. A, if he had a bit of a sniff of a victory, yeah. he was really, uh, you know, do- dogged. It's a real racer. I mean, you know, and that would have been bred on on the the, the dirt tracks in Australia. Should we talk about his his greatest drives? Because there's a few aspects of his career that that are kind of covered by that. And in fact, one of them is uh, with your your choice for number ten, Kev, which is the sixty one Indy five hundred. Obviously, he was a a key part of the. The, the, the sort of starting the process to kill off the roadsters at uh, at Indy. Yes, although funnily enough, he didn't actually think that at the time. There was a, uh, he did a long interview. Um, uh, I think it was with Chris Nixon actually after the sixty one inch five hundred in Autosport, where he was asked, "Oh, do you think this this is going to show the end of the front engine roads?" He said, "No, I don't think so. I don't. I think if you put an engine, the engine size you need to win Indy won't work in the mid engine car," which I thought was quite an interesting. Um, interesting line, really, given that he'd shown him, yeah, you know, he he'd shown the way, really, and it was Clark and Colin Chapman that then, I guess, took up the took up the challenge. Um, but yeah, sixty one wasn't really a great season for Cooper or Brabham in uh, Formula One, but they took on the challenge of, of the Indy five hundred. I, Sorry, I see that my recollection of it as, as a, a an opportunity to win some money because there was so much money paid. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it didn't require a huge amount of of reengineering of a standard. Cooper Formula One car uh, to turn it into an Indianapolis type car uh, and yeah they finished ninth and so they picked up quite a lot of money and it was a, a worthwhile exercise I don't think they were in the way that Colin Chapman Jim Clark Dan Gurney did a few years later try to turn the world on its head no that's probably fair I mean they tested a I think they tested a Formula One Cooper on and on yeah, yes. it was a T, and and I think they went fifteen or twenty mile an hour quicker than the Americans had predicted, mm. and they thought, well, actually, this is we might be, have something here. So they had yes. a slightly bigger engine. They made a few. Yeah, if you look at the T fifty four, it you can see it looks very much like the T fifty three. Yeah, the Formula One car, um, and I, I think the reason I wanted to put this in the list really 
partly because I think it's quite a cool, interesting story, but also because it shows his adaptability. He said very early on that surrounded by all the roadsters early in the race, yeah. it was quite intimidating, you know, a lot bigger than him. Their performance, where they were strong and weak, was in a completely different yeah. um, position to his. Well, the keeper was basically cooking the corner slow on the straight, Exactly, it? you know, and uh, I mean, he couldn't, make advantage in the early stages of the Cooper's strength because there was always a car in the way but he, he he got better and better and he got quicker and quicker and actually he might have finished in the top six had it not been for the fact that he was the only runner on Dunlop's and Dunlop had produced um, a, a sort of a special tie for the race but it, it wasn't quite durable enough and he had to have an extra an extra pit stop than they'd planned and it, it drops him out and it dropped him to ninth whereas he, he might have hoped for a top six finish but um didn't they make a mess of the pit stops as well got yes they've they, uh, got the uh the wheels yeah all the their hubs. stops were off off the pace as well yeah uh, which again is a contrast to lotus because when lotus when clark won in 65 um they were well drilled and they had some of the fastest pit stops yes. during that race um so it was a it was, I think it was an interesting exercise for both Cooper and and for Brabham. And Brabham, of course, did go back to the Indy 500 yep. um, as both a driver and a constructor. At number nine on the list is the 59 Monaco Grand Prix, the first World Championship race. We've discussed that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, clearly a significant race in his career. Well, he, he's, he gave com- almost contradictory uh, accounts of this race in, in different places. Quite interesting. I think he felt conflicted about it. Obviously, very important race. Um, and actually finished with the pedals extremely hot as well. So I think it was a, yeah, it was worthy of making the list. Um, but he, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he 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 was, he felt that he let Sterling get too far ahead in the Rob Walker Cooper, and that um, he was therefore sort of fortunate to to win it. But you say it finished with the pedals unbearably hot. In fact, to been like that for half the race. Mm. I mean, he'd be, mm. if you can imagine. <laughs> having your feet scorched literally intense pain you'd get from them. i mean that was a part of jack's character as well he he, he was tough mm. oh, uh, yes. not to say the other drivers weren't tough as well but he was very tough uh, he, he could put up with it it wasn't the only time that it happened in his career either that he was driving a car where the pedals were almost well, were really too hot to touch but he persevered what, what i found interesting about this race as well was um there are a couple of points where brabham himself says you know everyone thinks that having this engineering background was an advantage and obviously in certain situations we've talked talked about them already they were but he felt that sometimes he worried too much about it he said it would almost be better if i didn't know that the engine had been overheating the week before or whatever and i could just get on with it um he said it sometimes got in his way um so i guess it it can you know it, it can work for or against you depending on the depending on the circumstances Number eight is the 1960 New Zealand Grand Prix at Ardmore. Got a good win under pressure from uh, no less than than Sterling Moss. And again, the, the, this is part of a group of races that tends to get a little bit forgotten now, simply because it isn't. They shouldn't be because they were fantastic. Fantastic in this period, the races in, in that part of the world. Yes, absolutely. There's some non well, not just non championship F1 races in general. There were some great races that have, don't get the the focus that they should because they weren't part of the World Championship. Um, but this one stands out for two reasons. One is um, he actually started at the back. It was a, it was one of these things where they had a couple of heats and then a final, uh, and he had a, uh, he was leading his heat. Moss had certainly Moss had won his heat. Brabham was leading his, and the car retired. I think it actually caught fire, um, and he had to start from the back. It wasn't reverse grid nonsense. It was wasn't it? no none of that. No, oh, don't get me started on that. Um, no, I just thought through. It, yeah. <laughs> and in I wish there was footage of this race because he starts at the back and he's third by the end of the first lap. So there must be, okay, so the field isn't of the highest quality, but nevertheless, there are some decent drivers in it. So to come through third at the end of the first lap and then in the lead at the end of the second is pretty amazing, I think. And the other reason I picked it was um, 
I think Bradman's one of those who, overall, he wasn't consistently operating on the level of a Moss or a Clark or a Stewart, but he definitely had days where he, he did. Um, and he had a fantastic scrap with um, with Moss in the Yeoman Credit Cooper in this race until... Um, which, which was described in all sport as the as the as the you know the best wheel to wheel race in the country has ever seen. I think, um, and then Moss Moss retired and, and Bradman was left to, to well actually I say left to win easily. I think the car started to f- fall apart towards the end and Bruce McLaren was catching him up as well. Yeah, I think Peter Greenslade's report in Autosport is probably the best account of that race that you'll find anywhere because in his books uh, Jack doesn't make much of it. I mean, yes, it, he mentions it, but he doesn't talk about it as being one of his uh, best ever races. I mean, I think Peter Greenslade, I'm not saying in any way has he exaggerated. I think he's given a much more interesting account of the race than, than Jack ever thought it was worth giving to. It was one of those random times where sometimes you'd get just a small report from a race like that. And then but if they had someone there, it's quite an extensive, yes. it's a proper extensive account of it. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, was a, it was one of the pleasant, there's always pleasant surprises when I do these lists and that, and that was one of them. So what issue of Autosport was that in, Kevin? Just so we can up the price on eBay. <laughs> uh, ooh, I'd have to, I'd have to check. The, I'm not sure whether it was the one immediately after the event because it was so far away. It might have been the week after the yeah, week two after. Weeks after yeah, yeah that would make a lot of sense. Uh, number seven on the list is the 1969 BRDC International Trophy at Silverstone. Another win. Were you at, were you at that, Ian? Yes. Oh, yeah. go on then, Ian. You, you, uh... Well, it, it doesn't actually stand out in my mind that much. I mean, I can, I can remember. Wrong, that's basically the... Yes. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> I think it was in your... I think you included it. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you certainly mentioned Because it, I think it? what happened in it justifies its inclusion. Whether it should be as high up as this, I don't know. But it was one of those days when Jack was better than his teammate, uh, who was Jackie Ix. Um, in the damp. And Ix was one of the... One of the good guys in the wet. I mean, there is a, I think you've probably done this in autosport already, haven't you? The, the top 10 best ever wet weather drivers. Um, we did that? a wet weather races and I did a, yes, I did do a sidebar. And, uh, and I think online. Jack goes up there. I think he, he was an extremely good driver in the wet. Yes, Jackie Ix was as well. Um, and I don't remember it as being anything uh, exceptional. In other words, it, it was a, a good solid win by Jack Brabham. Um, on the day when the Lotuses were in trouble. And, and uh, the fact that he finished ahead of Jackie Ickes, who, as you say, was an early race for Jackie in the team, but nonetheless, um, Jack beat him fair and square. Um, and the uh, the Frank Williams Brabham of Piers Courage was, in, was going mm. well in that race as well, but Jack finished ahead of everybody. It also stands out as one of Vince's drives because he came charging through the field after an early, I think, misfire. Um, in the Lotus Forty Nine, and uh, but but again, Brabham was able to respond and was well holding him at arm's length until he started. I don't know what it is with Brabham and running out of fuel. Oh, exactly, it's uh, a feature of his career. Over the yeah, years. He, yeah, he actually uh, Autosport reported that he coasted across the line with a dead engine. <laughs> well, this is Simon. Put more fuel in it. Our old friend Simon Taylor, you see, who was those days reported for Autosport, and he says a pit signal went out to Brabham, and Wiley Jack pulled out a little more speed, still driving superbly. So clearly, Simon was impressed. Uh, on the day and you can rely on what Simon says um, uh, and uh, it, it was an, a very impressive performance but still my memory doesn't sort of um, remember anything outstanding about it it's just Jack did a very very good job to win the race I thought it was also worth picking out because it was another he'd bounced back again you know there were a couple of times where his yes. career looked like it was in the way you know it was waning um, uh, and he hadn't won a race a world championship Grand Prix since you know for a couple you know, year and a half a couple of years 
uh, and then oh here he is and I think the I think Simon finishes with you know Jack's back you know again <laughs> I'm having a thought here we're going on to the next one I know which is a similar sort of category a non-championship Formula 1 race the top 10 non-championship Formula 1 races of all I, I have started a list yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a list does exist but it, it's rather too long at the moment um, number 6 is the 1964 entry 200 uh, another victory were you at this one well yeah I was uh, I mean, in fact I saw the accident because um, the accident happened coming out of Melling Crossing just before Tats Corner, uh, which is where I was watching, and and uh, yeah, it, it it was just a, an amazing battle between the two of them, um, Jack and Jim Clark, and Jim Clark was the king, and and uh, and, and um, Jack stayed with him and lost the lead, regained the lead, and they were at it, good old cliche, hammer and tongs, uh, and eventually um, Jimmy got uh, caught out when they came up to lap about Mark. I mean, Melling Crossing was an extremely difficult corner. It was always regarded as one of the most difficult corners on a British circuit. You came up the railway straight, which was the fastest part of the circuit, into a, it went left and then it went right, and you couldn't see the, the right-handed bit. It was all very fast um, until you got into the left-handed bit. Um, uh, and there, going rather slowly, uh, Jim, or the pair of them, came upon André Pilette in the Sirocco. And André had been quite a good driver, Belgian driver, uh, in the 50s, but he was past his best, I think it's fair to say. But it wasn't really his fault. He, he couldn't get out of the way. I mean, he was there. Um, and Jimmy misjudged how to get past him and um, went off and crashed quite heavily and wrote off the Type 33. What, what I like about that race as well is that Clark's coming through early yeah. on and gets the lead and there were a number of times in his career where that was the end and he'd just disappear but he couldn't get away from, from well, it's back to your point that you made earlier about he, he wouldn't give up yes if he had a, a he smelt the chance of victory and clearly he, he knew he was quick even if he had been caught by Jimmy uh, and he stuck with him and, and got the lead back I like the fact that he's ahead when the Batmarker moment happens yes. as well. Yeah. Because that, you know, you kind of feel like he, it wasn't like he was gifted to him. He'd no, 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 absolutely not. He'd already done his bit, you know, before then. Who wrote the report for that race? I see you, you've quoted a bit here. Thanks to Jack and Jochen. It had been a first class race, concluded Autosport. Who wrote that? I think it was Patrick oh, so McNally. I think. Oh, Sounds about right, the right okay. time for, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for, for that. Um, well, let's move on to number five, which is 1970 South African Grand Prix. You've mentioned before, Brabham. About a month away from his forty-fourth birthday, yeah, uh, takes a takes a pretty impressive win. Uh, yeah, old man comes out and and uh, de defeats everyone basically. Um, yeah, then it was a bit of a troubled weekend as well. They'd had to change the engine last minute. Um, he then had a clash, which uh, there's quite different uh, differing interpretations of who was at fault for the clash with Rint at the first corner. Um, but anyway, so he spent a couple of laps making sure that there weren't bits falling off and again he, he makes a point of always driving within his limits I think I don't think he you know he had a long career during a very dangerous period and he didn't have many major shunts Jack yeah, he's, he's very clear that that was his upright mindset yeah, to stay um, within his limits and the same with the engineering of the car as well um, I think Bernie Eccleston said to him if you want to stay alive you go to Bradham if you want to win the World Championship go yeah. to Lotus uh, you know that was a that was per prophetic so yeah exactly so um, so I think that he was you know he's always, always conscious of that um, and uh and he then just picked people off, picked people off, um, uh, and and closed Jackie Stewart down, uh, um, yeah, who who I think 
was the benchmark driver of the day. Uh, Rainy all, World, all be ra- saddled with a march. Well, that is the one caveat to this, which is probably why it's not higher, um, because I think the BT33 was quite a lot better than the March 701. I think the 701 was only in the lead because Jackie Stewart was driving it. Well, really. that's not quite fair. I know that it was... Chris Eamon yeah, went pretty well yeah, in the but, 701 as well. But I He wasn't a bad driver. I was going to say, I think that says more about Eamon than the 701, really. Um, so, yeah, so picks it off and then disappears down the road and controls the race. Um, so. And that should have been the prelude to a potential world championship winning season, as we've talked about already. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. Uh, number four is the 1964 Alton Park Gold Cup. A victory, of course. You, yeah, I was, I was there for that. And I, I, I can remember, because I can still visualise them, com- them coming across the line side by side um, at, at the end, Jim Clark and Jack Brabham, with Jack just in front. And it went on for the, all right, it wasn't a full Grand Prix distance, um, but it was an hour or more of racing. Uh, and they were just changing places. There was Danny Helm involved in it, Graham Hill involved in it, uh, and Jim Clark and Jack Brabham. Uh, and, and Jack won it. And, and that goes to, to another illustration of, of just tactically you were talking about it earlier on kevin how good he was in a race in a battle but these little one liter cars they provided some magnificent racing they didn't have wings it's pre-wing era um so the slipstreaming was the order of the day they all had the same power and in a way you want to recreate that kind of racing get rid of all modern technology <laughs> go back to wingless one liter cars and put the grand prix drivers in those as happened um in in the the, the one liter f2 that ran from 1964 to 66 um and, and jack well he was the champion i mean he, he all right at, uh in 65 he had the uh, sorry 66 he had the honda engine to help him um but he was just brilliant in formula two and there's a reason i like that race as well is that clark takes quite a long the account suggests that clark has to work quite hard to get past Brabham for yeah. the lead. Yeah. And then immediately Jack attacks back and gets yeah. the lead back. Now, whether that's because he had a slight but significant car advantage or because of his own racecraft mm. is difficult to say. I mean, Gregor Grant's report does kind of indicate he thinks the Brabham is marginally the better car. But then he also makes the point, well, but it could be because of what Brabham's done to it, because it is a Brabham. So, um, but yeah, to, to, to beat Jim Clark in a, you know, in a, in a duel like that, by two tenths of a second. I mean, you've, it's, it's got to be top draw, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's it's fair enough to say that Jim Clark was the better driver. I don't think anyone would dispute that. Uh, so maybe the Brabham car played a part, but he was still had to be there, and and he was there across the line. I mean, they came out of Deer Leap. I remember seeing it, and 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 there they were almost level um, across the line. It is a fantastic race, and and one liter F two. I've gone about it. It was just a, a wonderful category of racing. 1970 British Grand Prix, uh, second place for, for Brabham and another one of the races that we file under fuel shortage. Yes, yeah, with Ron Dennis' involvement. Uh, I think there was a suggestion he may have been to blame for it. Uh, but yes, but that it kind of almost is too perfect for history that this future super team boss was, I, I, the, was to blame for it. I remember when, um, when I did that interview with Brabham, I asked him about his memories of Ron Dennis, who was a sort of young mechanic then. And, and, it, and his response was something about he's very, very meticulous and very good at organising the truck. Which I didn't know if that was damning with faint praise to be, well, quite, uh, to be quite honest, but perhaps says a lot about uh, about Ron Dennis's organisation. Ron had been at Cooper, so yes. he'd followed he'd followed Jack to, to to Brabham, and I don't think Jack would have taken him on unless he highly regarded. Oh, him. No, I, th- I think he did. Yeah, I think Rint that. rated him yeah. high. Yeah. Um, uh, Ron yeah, I think, I, I think uh, <laughs> joking aside, he but, was uh, the, the, he was very good at what he did. But that but that race was another you know just an epic fight where um well first of all Ix actually grabs the lead in the ferrari with there is a picture of him with half the car on the grass at druids it was obviously quite a bold move to get the lead in the first place 
Um, and Bram's got his hands full with Rince Lotus. And then almost simultaneously, Rince chucks the car down the inside into Paddock Hill Bend just as the Ferrari breaks. So they're all, all suddenly concertinas together and Rint comes out ahead. And again, Brabham just doesn't let him get away. Um, hangs on to him, applies the pressure, applies the pressure, and eventually Rint did miss a gear and Brabham made, made the move, started to pull away. You know, this is a young up-and-coming guy who's leading the world championship in, in a car that is going to revolutionise, you know, Formula One. And again, Brabham 44 by this stage, He's got him. He's got him licked um, right up until the last lap, last third of a lap. I think it actually finally sort of coughed and spluttered so that Rink could go back past. Um, and I think that that Brabham regarded that as his most disappointing defeat of all the disappointments in my racing career. Maybe that one hurt more than most. There you go, as he said. But of course, he he, he almost got the win uh, back, didn't he? Because he was classified second um, behind Rint, and then the Lotus Seventy Two was excluded initially because the wing was too high uh, a scrutineering uh, so Colin Chapman got everybody in the team to lean on the rear wing and get it down to the right level and uh, anyway it all, managed all, to get through Autoport was pretty scathing about the whole process <laughs> um, from beginning to end And but Brabham actually said the moment he saw Colin going in and talking to the organisers <laughs> he, he, knew that, he knew that it was, he wasn't going to keep the wing the, the, the other trick for that for the, for the high rear wing is just to puncture the tyres a little bit a little bit fair out that's what you'd yeah. have done uh, that that's what uh, I believe has been has been done in on on occasion, shall we say? <laughs> you've got you've got to find a way though. Um, nineteen sixty French Grand Prix. That was the one that Jack Brabham chose for his autosport race of my life. The one that I did in two thousand and nine with him. Uh, second in your list. Yes. Um, I think this is an example of the slipstreaming. I think that I've seen quotes of suggest that he thinks that the Ferrari towed the Cooper up to two hundred miles an hour. I think that that is. That, Unlikely. That seems a little bit. Fanciful. I think that's probably a little bit on the high side. But, 180. Um, yeah, I think 180 is is is. Well, that's what they talk about at the time. Yeah, 180 uh, sounds perfectly. Uh, yeah. Perfectly so it's reasonable. a it's a slipstream battle against the Ferraris. I think Jack liked it because it was it was the last sort of circuit where oh, Coopers won't win that because it's a power circuit. Right. But, but I was thinking yeah, quite like beating Ferrari. Uh, well, that's that as well, factor, yes, yes. But <laughs> Kevin's point is absolutely right um, about uh, Ferrari having this was their last shot. All right, there was the Italian Grand Prix, but that was special mm. reasons. Didn't have the British teams there. Uh, um, but has, the point he made was that the Cooper had an incredibly low frontal area compared to the Ferrari, so yes. the Ferrari hit much more of an aerodynamic wall. So he reckoned that he could actually out pull out and go past the Ferrari even at the end of the straights, and of course he could you know, break much later. Um, so I had a great fight with Phil Hill and eventually he looks in his mirror and Phil Hill comes stonking down the inside and he, well, as he told you, Ed, he, he managed to not turn into the corner. Otherwise, it could have been quite a nasty accident. And he's left to, you know, left left to win by quite a margin. I think in the end it was a Cooper 1, 2, 3, 4, which rather, you know, that was it. The front engine Grand Prix car was finished. What What's overlooked, uh, we haven't actually touched on this, let me just make the point. Of course, that race and... In fact, some of the other wins that he had were in the absence of Sterling Moss because he'd had the crash at Spa, uh, which had taken him out of racing for several races. I know it's a what if, but the question is, what if Sterling had been in those races in the Lotus 18? Would the outcome have been the same? It's just something we'll never know the answer to, but it's, it's, it's just something to bear in mind when we talk about those wins. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, that's why I've tried to also pick races where they have he has sort of beaten or matched, you know, like the Alton Park F2 yeah. race. Um, but obviously, him. one of the factors when I'm looking at these lists is what the drivers themselves think. I mean, it doesn't yeah. automatically mean it's number one. 
Sometimes it is. Um, but in this case, I thought it was beaten by uh, by winning w- winning on the Nordschleifer. I always tend to factor venue in as well, and I just don't think Reims is a uh, the same driver challenge as the as the Nordschleifer. Well, sixty six German Grand Prix, which is your number one, and that in fact was other times one that Bradman indicated was perhaps his uh, his, his greatest it, race it, as well. In his autobiography, it's one of the few races he actually specifically picks out for the driving, as opposed to well, we were well prepared for this one. Mm. Um, and he had, it's slightly to me reminiscent of Graham Hill's 62 win there. And it's sort of, you've got dodgy conditions and you, you've run under pressure the whole time. So in, in Graham Hill's case, he had Dan Gurney and John Surtees behind him. Uh, and in this case, it was it was Surtees. And Surtees was, Surtees was is better than people remember. And he was particularly mega at the Nürburgring as well. Um, and Brabham, you know, stayed ahead. And he said that the conditions were different every lap because the river was different or it was drying somewhere, it was wet somewhere else. So incredible concentration with one of the best drivers in the world on that track, chase, chasing you the whole time and um, and until the, the, the Cooper Maserati eventually had a, a, a gearbox problem. But um, yeah, he ended up beating uh, Jock and Rint um, by two and a half minutes. Um, and Rint, again, was a, ra- a rising star, was good on the, you know, one... One races in the Nurburgring, um, uh, so I, I, for me it was it was the num- number one number one. I pick. think you're probably right, but the, my but is is that I was contend not having driven either of the cars, but I would contend from the sidelines um, that Jack had a much better car for the conditions than John Surtees had. In other words, the Cooper Maserati was no wieldy thing, um, and for him to be anywhere near Jack Brabham was quite an achievement. That's probably fair, although I've been doing quite a bit of... I'm, I'm doing some rint research at the moment, and um, uh, David Tremaine's book on Jochen is very good, and he quotes um, both rint and Surtees, and said actually the Cooper Maserati was a, was a pretty decent car, was pretty well balanced. So, as you say, we've not driven the car, so it's a bit difficult. I think you can certainly say that Brabham had extra tread cut into the tyres as well yeah. to help dissipate the water. So he prob- he probably did have a... He probably did have a technical um, advantage that day, um, but I just think Nordschleifer, tricky conditions, oh, un- yeah, under uh, pressure. But yes, I, I mean, I think well, I would pr- probably as a, on just sheer driving, I would put Surtees ahead of Rabham as well. Um, so you know, it's another it's another beating of a, a sort of fellow great, really. Well, that yeah, but that, that, right, you've introduced an interesting concept because you say you put Surtees ahead of Rabham, probably on his day, John's natural ability would put him ahead. But he had his off days, didn't he? For whatever reason it may be. But back to the pragmatic Brabham, he got the job done. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a fair... He had, he had a load of amount of talent, but he also got the job that, done. That's not meant to be a criticism of 30s, Jack no. Brabham. That's, uh, I think John Zertes, you know, I think that's an incredible period of time, actually, for, for drivers. Um, and, and Jack's right up there with, you know, as you say, able to mix it and, and beat them. Hmm. Uh, but uh, for me, um, the, the the number one race is the, is the 64 NG200, partly because I was there, but also because he was beating Jim Clark fair and square. It wasn't the end of the race when the crash happened, but the back marker, but it, it was just you know, wheel-to-wheel stuff um, until the accident. It, it was an amazing performance because Jim Clark was the god. I mean, he was the, the, the best. Well, I think it says a lot that you've got a driver there who can beat. A driver like Jim Clark yeah, on exactly. his day. That yeah. so, so I think our, our sort of final conclusion of uh, of Bravham, obviously, uh, you know, he's a great driver by any any measure. Yes. Um, but yeah, th- does he sort of sit in a little side a side grouping as the the great uh, engineering driver? 
who maybe just purely doesn't drive in isolation. He's not a he's not a Clark or a Moss, obviously. But does that mean we have to kind of consider him slightly slightly off to one side, or is he? Does it make him? Well, does it, does it lift championships. him into that into that echelon because he had so much success and he contributed so much to his own success? Yeah, off track. There's nobody else. You can, I don't think you can put in that category. I mean, because he he engineered the cars as well. All right, they were simpler than they are now, um, but and, and he had Ron Toronac, um as well in the Brabham days. But there's nobody in the same league as him when it comes to uh, a driver winning a world championship with a car that he's played a major part in the engineering of. Uh, yeah, I, I feel that he's a greater motorsport figure or more important in motorsport than he is a great driver. But I don't mean that to be derogatory towards his driving. Yeah, I think he's uh, he was one of the best drivers in the world when he was driving. I don't think he was ever the best, no. but because of his engineering um, abilities, he, you know, he, it's he hard was to... a, in, in 1960, and this goes back to your French Grand Prix race, it, it, he, he was the best for the period that Sterling Moss was out of yes, action. Yes, yeah, that's... Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very, very fair. And the one thing we have to also add is we, we, you can't question the quality of his genes because obviously sons, Jeff and, and David, both won Le Mans, very successful drivers, third generations of Brabham's as well. So uh, so very clearly uh, that, that there's there's a bit of magic there. And the team obviously went on to be a, you know, it was a successful force with you know, Gordon Murray and Nelson Piquet when Bernie Eccleston owned it. Um, so yeah, a big, a big, a big legacy. Um, of course, David Brabham raced for Brabham in Formula One in nineteen ninety. A very, very different Brabham in that. Yeah, he probably in, wouldn't be so keen on that in, one. Internal but, decline, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, just uh, just a little, little amusing footnote, I guess. I've got a little quote here from Autosport, nineteen fifty-five, Goodwood Easter Monday. That's probably the first time he was seen, uh, and I think it's probably Gregor Grant said this Aussie is certainly a presser honour. <laughs> new autosport word um, and possesses remarkable control over his car more will be heard of this young gentleman said Gregor Grant well there we go autosport um, gets it does get it right occasionally exactly I, th- I think that's a very good place to a <laughs> uh, very good place to finish and say more will be not heard on this topic on this particular podcast but again it's been fascinating to uh, to discuss one of the great drivers he's always a very enjoyable podcast to do so thanks very much Kevin Turner and Ian Titchmarsh uh, well, do check out autosport.com for the latest news on Formula One and the whole world of motorsport and our plus subscriber area for in-depth features, opinion, columns, that kind of thing. Check out sister titles motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and you enjoy it, normally out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.